0: Good afternoon, and welcome to Calvary's Way, a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. Calvary's Way, recorded live at Calvary Chapel, is a Bible study taught by Pastor Gib Allen. Last time in our study of the book of Acts, we saw Peter's first sermon. Today in Acts chapter 2, verses 37 through 41, we see the great conviction that came from that sermon in a message entitled, What Shall We Do? We will pick it up in verse 36. He says in verse 36, Therefore... Let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Now, it is fascinating to see what an incredible work of the Holy Spirit is going on here, because Peter's not even through with his message. He doesn't offer any invitation at all, merely a declaration of the truth. But the listeners themselves supply the invitation. If you recall, when they heard them speaking in other tongues, it produced nothing in these listeners but astonishment and mocking. You see, it wasn't until the gospel was preached that conviction, the conviction of the Holy Spirit, came. This was the work that God really wanted to accomplish. Now, verse 37 says, they were cut to the heart. Cut to the heart is just a good way of describing the conviction of the Holy Spirit. The Greek word, katanuso, it means to prick or to pierce or to sting sharply, to stun. Conviction, it it is a sense that, that I've done something wrong and that I need help. And sometimes it's accompanied by feelings like anxiety, guilt, heaviness, and even depression. It is a sense of sin. It is a sense of doing wrong, of breaking God's law, of being disobedient to God, a sense of failure, of coming short, of disappointing and displeasing God. And conviction causes people to seek answers, and they ask, what shall we do? Now there's a similar word that we use, starts with a C, but it's called condemnation. But there is a great difference between conviction and condemnation. Conviction pushes you towards God, draws you towards God for help. Condemnation always pushes you away from God. The Holy Spirit brings conviction. The enemy, Satan, brings condemnation. And it's wonderful to know the promise of God in Romans 8, 1, isn't it? There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Verse 37, again, And now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? This, by the way, is the first instance we have of what Jesus promised would happen in the scripture that we read earlier in our scripture reading in John 16, 8 through 11. Speaking of the Holy Spirit, Jesus said, And when he has come, he will convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment, of sin because they do not believe in me, of righteousness because I go to my Father and you will not see me anymore, and of judgment because the ruler of this world has been judged. Jesus promised that conviction would accompany the message, and here it is. They are cut to the heart, convicted. True, godly conviction comes from a person responding to the work of the Holy Spirit in his life. But conviction also comes from God's Word. You see, as Peter got up to answer the people, when they saw this happening, they said, whatever could this mean? And Peter got up to answer the people, and he answered with the Word of God. The Word of God brings conviction. Hebrews 4 and verse 12 says, For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. Listen, we need to always use the Bible when we talk to people about their need for God. You see, the Bible is powerful whether you believe it or not. You might say to me, but how can I use the Bible to tell my friends about Jesus? They don't believe in the Bible. Well, the fact that they don't believe in the Bible isn't really all that relevant. The Bible is the sword of the Spirit. In fact, that's what it is called in Ephesians chapter 6. It is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. And it is going to work in people's hearts, whether they believe in it or not. So just use the word. Now, Peter must have been pretty happy at this point. He was astounded, but probably pleasantly so, to see what God was doing in this situation. Instead of people wanting to crucify Him because of Jesus, now He has thousands of people wanting to know what they can do to get right with God. They say, Men and brethren, what shall we do? And that brings us to verse 38, where we left off last time. Then Peter said to them, Repent. Now, that is what is called a second person imperative. I only tell you that because it means that it is a mandate. The idea here is that it's an absolute for anyone, anytime, anywhere. Second person imperative, you have to repent. Now, I'm curious uh, what goes through our minds when somebody says the word repent, because repent is a word that is greatly misunderstood. Most people think that repentance means that you feel sorry, and you begin to cry, and you weep. That has absolutely nothing to do with repentance. You may feel sorry, and you may begin to weep, and you may cry, but that is not necessary, and it does not mean that you have repented. Many people have wept and cried and never repented of their sin. To repent means to turn, to change your mind, to change your direction, A good way to describe repentance is you're walking down the street and I come up to you and I say, where are you going? And you say, well, I'm going that way. And I say, turn around right now and come this way. Turn around and follow me. If you were to do that, that's the idea of repentance, to turn around, to change your thinking, to change your life. And so we're going down the road of life, and uh, we're planning our futures, and we've got it all wired. And God says, stop, because you're not following me or my will. You haven't acknowledged that you are a sinner. You haven't acknowledged that you need a Savior. Stop and change. Turn around right now and follow me. Take my yoke, my control upon you. If you were to do that, that's repentance. That's the meaning of it. That's the idea of it. Now, repent sounds like a very harsh word in the mouths of a lot of preachers today. And consequently, it turns out to be very harsh in the ears of the listeners. But it is an essential aspect of the gospel. In fact, it is the first word of the gospel. When John the Baptist came preaching Matthew chapter 3 and verse 2, he said, Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus, when he began to preach, Matthew four seventeen, he said, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And now when Peter begins to preach, he starts with the same thing. Repent. Now, listen. Repentance must never be thought of something that we must do before we come to God. Repentance describes what coming to God is. You get it? Turning from where we were going before and turning towards God. In this sense, repent is a word of great, great hope. It says you don't have to continue the way that you've been going. You can turn to God, something that many people desperately desire and want today. Well, the second thing Peter says that they must do is to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. As an expression of their belief and complete trust in Him. Verse 38, Then Peter said to them, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And let every one of you be baptized. That is third-person passive imperative. In other words, the stress is laid on obedience, but it is not the same mandate as repent. Repent is second-person imperative, an absolute for anyone, any time. This is not that strong, but it is to be obeyed. Also notice the order. Repentance first, baptism second. Baptism doesn't save you. You must repent first. If you repent, then you are qualified for baptism. You see, it's not like, well, I'm convicted by the Holy Spirit, I need to get saved, so I've got to find some water now. No, you need to find Jesus now. Jesus Christ saves you, not baptism. Baptism does not save you. Now, I realize there are some churches that teach that you must be baptized to be saved. Some go to the point of saying that you must be baptized by them to be saved. And some go even further, that you can't even be baptized by them until they think that you are worthy of being baptized. But baptism doesn't save you. Baptism is only an outward sign of what God has already done on the inside of you. And when you turn to Him, however then God wants you to be baptized. Jesus commands, baptize all of them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. In doing that, that signifies that you have repented. You see, baptism does not add anything to your repentance. It does not make you better. It does not do anything magic for you so that you are suddenly forgiven of your sins. But baptism is the outward declaration by symbol of the change of mind that you have experienced within. Baptism is an open identification with Jesus Christ. To be baptized means that you are telling everybody, I belong to him. I follow him. I love him. And I am one of his. You see, it is a cutting off from the old way of thinking It's the beginning of a new life. You see, among these Jews that Peter was preaching to on that day, it was a very clearly understood process. They knew that when a Gentile became a Jew, his body was washed all over, and they called that a baptism. It was a symbol that he was beginning a new life now, starting all over again. But wait a minute now. Look again at what Peter says in verse 38. Then Peter said to them, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. Now the phrase for the remission of sins, you can use that interchangeably with the forgiveness of sins. The idea is the release from the debt of sin. Let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for The remission of sins. Now a great number in the church have taken that passage to mean that when you are baptized your sins are forgiven. But the word for in the Greek can carry two different ideas. For instance, if you saw a wanted poster that said, Jesse James wanted for robbery It could mean that you want to see Jesse James so that he can commit a robbery for you. Jesse James wanted for robbery. Or it can mean you want to see Jesse James because he has committed robbery. Jesse James wanted for robbery, you see? Now this is the way the verse should read. This is the best translation of this verse. Be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ because of the forgiveness Of your sins. We are not baptized in order to receive forgiveness of sins. We are baptized because we have received forgiveness of sins. A little later on in the book of Acts, Peter is going to be speaking to another crowd of people in the house of Cornelius and he says to them in Acts 10 and verse 43, he says whoever believes in him will receive remission of sins. Whoever believes in him, you see, he doesn't say anything at all about baptism. So baptism is not the essential here. It is repentance that obtains remission of sins. Nothing else. I mean, it isn't going to church that saves you. It isn't giving to the church that saves you. It isn't being a nice person. It isn't getting water splashed on you. There are many people today that have been baptized, but they are not saved. They've come to churches, and they have come to uh, baptismal fonts. They've gotten sprinkled, or they've gotten immersed, but they do not know Jesus Christ. It's just a ritual. Never rest in a ritual. Jesus Christ came from heaven to be a man, to take our sin upon himself, to die so that you would never have to face that eternal judgment, that eternal punishment. And if you turn to him, If you turn around to him in faith and embrace him as your Savior and your Lord, then you will be saved. It is changing your mind about Jesus Christ that enables God to wipe out all your guilt and all of the sins of your past. Baptism is only a sign that that has been accomplished. Well, verse 38 again Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, the most glorious, wonderful news about the outpouring of the Holy Spirit was that it was something that these people could take part in. You see, they didn't only have to be observers. He goes on in verse 39, For the promise is for you. The promise is for you. This phenomena of the Holy Spirit filling the disciples wasn't just for the original disciples. The gift of the Holy Spirit now will be given to them, that is, those that receive the word that Peter's preaching to, just as it was given to the original group of disciples. You see, the Holy Spirit is for all who believe in Jesus. For the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are afar off. Now there are people today, there are those today, who say that the gift of the Holy Spirit is no longer available. No, no. The promise of the Father is to you, your children, and those who are afar off in coming generations and in other regions. Listen, don't let anyone deny you the gifts and the empowering of the Holy Spirit. Don't let them come to you and say that it is no longer applicable or no longer available. The promise of the Father, which was experienced on the day of Pentecost, is available to you, to your children, and to those who are afar off, even in Orlando. And then he goes on. As many as the Lord our God will call. As many as the Lord our God will call. That's a very interesting statement, because it indicates that we do not really find God. God finds us. If you have in your heart right now a hunger to know God, and you think that it started with you, it did not. It started with God. God the Father is working in you, drawing you, calling you. Jesus said in John 6, 44, no one can come to the Father unless the Father who sent me draws him. And God is drawing people to himself all over the world today. Now, notice that Peter goes right on here, and he links this with the decision of the human will also. Verse 40, And with many other words he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. That is, you have something to do yourself. You have something. You see, it's not just the call of God alone that's going to do it. You may feel the drawing and the pulling of the Father in your heart, but now you have to respond to that. You have to make a decision. You have to act. You have to decide to step over, to change your mind, to repent and become identified with Jesus Christ. And so Peter continued to urge the crowd to come in repentant surrender to Jesus. He said, be saved from this perverse generation. And of course, any generation that is responsible for putting Jesus Christ to death is a perverse generation, isn't it? But since every generation is responsible for Jesus' death, we have all sinned and come short of the glory of God, then every generation needs salvation. And do we ever live in a perverse generation today? how this generation needs Jesus. Well, verse 41, then those who gladly received his word. See, the early believers were a people who received the word of God. This, by the way, is the basic trait, the first trait of a true church. In fact, it actually defines a church. A church is a people, a body of people who have received the word of God. You see, these people were not receiving a set of ideas or a man's thoughts or a set of rules or principles or human philosophy or a position or religion. They were receiving the word of God, the very revelation of God himself. God had revealed himself in Jesus Christ to his disciples, and Peter, the spokesman for the disciples, was proclaiming the word about Christ and a true church. That is, a true body of believers does not just sit and listen and hear the word. They are not just present to join the crowd to see what is going on. They don't just sit with wandering minds and closed hearts. A true church receives the word of God. They welcome it, you see. They believe it. They practice it. They take it in. They experience it. They hold on to it. They hunger for it. They rejoice in it. And then they share it with others. Then those who gladly received his word. You see, true conversion comes with joy. It comes with joy. Sometimes a person with a real quote-unquote zeal for the Lord will just sort of push and push and push an unbeliever, trying to somehow force them to accept Jesus. No, 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 you don't need to do that. You don't need to twist people's arms to accept the Lord. If they're ready, they'll be willing, and they'll do it gladly and with joy. Then those who gladly received his word. Those three words, then those who, means that not everyone present received it. And of course, we know that because Josephus tells us that even though Jerusalem had a population of about 150,000 at that time, at the great feast, they would have well over a million people. And so we know that not everybody received the word here. You see, some were there for the wrong reasons, and others were close-minded and disinterested. Still others just simply refused to believe, and they rejected the word. But I believe that the reason the majority of them that refused, it was because they were just so stuck in their way. In other words, they were stuck in their religion so stuck in doing things the way they always did them that no matter what happened in their life, they weren't about to change. And so they refused to receive the Word. But those who received God's Word became the very first body of believers, the first church. Verse 41 continues, Then those who gladly received His Word were baptized. Even though baptism was such a dramatic statement, especially to them, These all were willing to make it, and with the huge resources of water that would be available on the Temple Mount, it wasn't difficult to find a place where these baptisms could take place. But you know, you stop and think about what a baptism service that must have been. But you know, God continues to do that, just that same thing. Back in 1990, Greg Laurie, who is pastor of Calvary Chapel of Riverside, California, started what he has called Harvest Crusades. And they've gone all over the nation now, and thousands, literally thousands of people, have been saved. Well, after this first one, back in 1990, they had a mass baptism at Corona Del Mar in the ocean. And they could not count. There were so many of them. They could not count how many were being baptized. But the event was attended by well over 5,000 people. And it was reported as the largest baptism service in the history of America. You see, God is still doing the same thing today. Then those who gladly received His word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. This day of Pentecost saw an amazing harvest of souls. The Church went from 120 to 3,120. You see, as you look back in history, when the Spirit came down, 3,000 souls were saved. Go further back into history. And when the law came down from Mount Sinai, 3,000 souls died. If you recall, Moses brought the law down from the mountain, and they were worshiping a golden calf. 3,000 men died at that point. You see, there's a picture for us in this, and that is, is that the law kills. Listen, you move into a legalistic Christianity, and you will reek of death. But allow the Spirit of God to come upon you, and life will always flow from you. And that day, about 3,000 souls were added to them. Now, what do you think was the effect on the city of Jerusalem when these 3,000 people openly identified themselves with this despised Nazarene who had been crucified by the rulers of this city just 50 days earlier? I mean, what do you think was the effect when this crowd, so moved and so stirred by all that had been seen and all that they could not deny and the conviction of the Spirit on their lives, publicly identified themselves with Jesus Christ? I mean, think how this touched lives. Many of the 3,000 were undoubtedly pilgrims who had come to Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost expecting something special from God. They always expected something special from God when they would come to these feasts, but they never expected anything like this. 3,000 souls made a commitment to Jesus Christ as their Lord and their Savior immediately when they heard the gospel. You see, the word of the gospel is always now. Now is the time. Now is the day of salvation, the Bible says. Today is the accepted time. The word of the gospel is always now. I think Nike sums up the gospel real well in their advertisement. Just do it. Just do it. You think, well, well, you know, I'm thinking about it. Just do it. It's life and death. Just do it. If God has brought conviction to your heart, just do it. Peter stood up and preached the gospel And many responded. The question is, will you respond? Have you responded? Can you say, I know without a doubt that if I were to die this morning, I would be in the presence of God? If you cannot say that, then you need to be sure. Don't mess with your life. This is serious stuff. What must you do? repent. That will give you remission of sins, and then a new life begins. We hope you have enjoyed today's edition of Calvary's Way with Gib Allen. Thanks again for listening, and we do hope you will join us again tomorrow as Pastor Gib teaches and we learn to walk Calvary's Way.